Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. We have, as a series of guests here, um, people that we know, in fact, we've entitled particularly this section, Friends and Family. Because the individuals that we have in, while they're all uh, accomplished speakers and communicators and committed followers of Christ, they're also people that we know personally. And so we don't present to you people that uh, we are not conscious of or aware of. Stuart McAllister is currently living in Atlanta, Georgia, but don't let that fool you. His accent will tell you that he's from Scotland and, uh, and proud of it. He is someone who has traveled the world speaking the things of Christ. Um, I have a great appreciation for his keen awareness of what is taking place around the world and how that aligns with Scripture. One of the things I love with Stuart that you're going to experience is this. Stuart has a great intellectual capacity and understanding that he presents in a very working-class way that any of us can grasp and take hold of. He is a man of passion, wisdom, and a lot of fun, and a good friend. I'm going to ask that you please very warmly welcome Stuart McAllister. Well, good morning, Rock Point. Great to be back here again in the city of Detroit. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this the last time, but actually my father was born here. Um, my grandfather was working as a toolmaker in the four plants. They came across from Scotland. I shouldn't mention that he was a communist, but that's a, bit, a little part of the story here as well. Um, then they went back to Scotland and uh, yeah, so... I am Scottish, but obviously have some kind of connection to your city, so it's a great honor to be back with you, and thanks for inviting me again and being a part of this fabulous team. I love your church. So, a few years ago, I heard the great American philosopher, Lee Iacocca, and he said, the main thing in life is to keep the main thing the main thing. Any of you remember, the older folks will remember the film City Slickers with Billy Crystal, you know, and all he's lost his sense of purpose and he's looking for the one thing in life. And what is the one thing? And he says, well, that's what you've got to figure out. So the phrase, the main thing in life is the main thing, is absolutely wonderful, but what does it mean? Because most people don't know what the main thing is. We're struggling, we're trying to figure out. There are many things in life. And today we watch our news, we listen to our podcasts, we we're bombarded about healthcare, about the environment, about Afghanistan, about everything. It's like everything's the main thing at the moment, all kinds of causes, and we're inundated. I want to talk to you about the, the most important question, which is a question that confronted me as an unbeliever. What do you think about Jesus? And I want to tell you why that is the most important question. It's not a religious question. It's not just a question that comes with people in a Christian heritage or a Christian bubble or a person with religious interest who might think this might be important. Is this or is this not an important question? And if so, why? I think it's the greatest question of time. If we go back to Mark chapter 8 and 27 through 29, 
Jesus is in his public ministry, the Gospel of Mark, which is one of the breathless Gospels, and Jesus did this and this and this. You get a sense of momentum and movement. It says, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questions the disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? And he told them, saying, some said John the Baptist, others said Elijah, and others one of the prophets. But he continued questioning them, but said, who do you say that I am? Peter answered and says to him, you are the Christ. Now, I want you to think just a second about the text here. It's very interesting. Jesus is very aware that there are multiple views about who he is and a diversity of interpretations. So pluralism wasn't a modern 21st century invention. It wasn't the idea that, you know, just because we came around and suddenly realized there's all these different religions. At this very beginning, the question, the question of Jesus' identity was up for grabs. And there were many different versions. Jesus asked who? Some people said, you're one of the prophets. You were this. They were, you were various things. Jesus then turns to his disciples, but who do you say that I am? Now, why was that important? One, they were the people that were following him. They were ones who had come to recognize something about them. And when Peter says, you are the Christ, that's not just a statement like Jesus didn't know who he was and I'm a bit confused. Who am I? By the way, oh, Peter, can you help me? Who am I? So Peter was giving them a little bit of identity clarification. The statement was within Jewish history, within the history of the cosmos, that there was a creator, there was a fall, there was a covenant-keeping God, and that one day Messiah would come, the hope of Israel, the hope of the ages. So when Peter made the statement, you are the Christ, he's making a statement about the big story of the universe, about who Jesus is, about God, about salvation. These are massive terms, but you wouldn't just get that if you just read this for the first time. So when the question came to me, when I heard that the first time, it was a strange question. You see, if we talk about religion in America, or if you talk about God generically, you can travel the world, and you can, I could be on the lecture circuit talking about God's spirituality. I can go to the university and talk about God with a small g. I can talk about anything religious. When the conversation zeroes in on the person of Jesus, and if I make any audacious claim that he actually claimed to be God or that there was an exclusivity, now we have a problem. Now the gloves come off. People get angry and upset. Look, can, isn't Jude, you know, Buddha, Jesus, Muhammad, aren't they all basically essentially the same thing? They're all going up the mountain. You know, the, the, the Hindus come up this end. The Muslims come up this side. The atheists, well, I don't know where they come up, but they're coming so. And, you know, other people are and we all get to the moment, we hold hands, we drink a Coca-Cola, and we sing, we are the world, we are the world, and we all live happily ever after in some kind of Disneyland. You see, pluralism, this kind of insistent, there, can, there is not one, the one truth is that there are many ways. That's the mantra of the modern age. All truths are equally, they're equally valueless or they're equally the same. So just pick which one fits you. Pick the one you like. I remember at the University of Alabama when my colleague, uh, friend John Lennox, 
was debating Richard Dawkins, and Dawkins was famous because of the God delusion, and he had written these tremendous uh, takedowns of Christian faith, and he attacked the whole nonsense that God was the most vile creature of fiction, and that God was homophobic, and all these types of language. Incredible use of metaphor, very interesting writing, very challenging, but, you know, needed pushback. So when John, who is a scientist, who was trained in Cambridge, who was a philosopher, and who knew the Bible, who had devoted his life to science and mathematics, is debating him, and they're talking about evidence for the resurrection and forth and all kinds of things. When John gets to the point where he mentions about the centrality of Jesus in his life, Dawkins almost chokes. He explodes. Oh, this petty Galilean in this faraway irrelevant country. What does that have to do with anything? And of course, John's point was, if he is who he said he was, it has everything to do with everything. That's the point. Either he is or he is not who he said he is. So my background, as I was thinking about this, this talk today, I came from, uh, I left home when I was 15. Uh, I grew up in a home where my dad was the product of the Second World War in many respects. He had flown with the RAF. Britain was recovering from the war years. There was a lot of poverty. There was a lot of struggle. Uh, dad was into this kind of Fabian socialism thing, you know, the new Britain that was going to emerge. My mom had come from a Christian background, but saw dad as the ticket out of Christianity. She wanted to be free, she wanted to be a party girl, and dad was her ticket away from the Nazarene church and the kind of holiness type of thing that was just restrictive to her. But I grew up in a very unhappy home for me. For some reason, I was the kind of kid, you know, I didn't find out my name wasn't shut up until I was 14. Um, but you know, that kind of kid who, the, 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 someone said, you've got the face that every mother likes to slap. That's a little bit too hard, but. I was the kind of kid who was always causing problems. I mean, I just, I don't know why, just, you know, like to touch the wrong things, go to the wrong places, say the wrong things, and eventually it all blew up when I was 15, and I got into a fight with my father, I left home, and I was on my own. Oh, party time! I mean, imagine being 15 years old, and you have to, you know, so get, get your living, live in your own. I thought it was great, I thought it was free, 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 until I found out that, where's my dinner? Who's washing my clothes? How come the place isn't getting cleaned up? What's wrong with this? <laughs> that was my freedom. You know, you have to do this for yourself. Anyway, freedom comes with a price, right? But anyway, I, I, I was out in this life. I was living the good life, and I thought things were going well. And I uh, took up with this woman, this married woman. I was working in a dance hall. I was a bouncer. I uh, just thought, well, just take what you can get, get money, have fun, you know, live the good life. Met this lo lovely girl, um, woman. She was about <laughs> six years older than me, but she was very attractive. We were living together. And things were going great, at least I thought they were going great, till one day she comes in and says, what do you think about Jesus? And I, what do I think about who? Well, I never thought anything about Jesus. I mean, why would I think about Jesus? Didn't science disprove that? Hadn't that passed its sell-by day? I mean, didn't they know that Darwin had answered all the questions of existence? I mean, or Freud had explained it was some kind of an eruption of our, our longings, putting a projection for comfort onto the universe, and so we came up with a, a God hypothesis. I, I didn't know, and quite frankly, I didn't care. Now, why is that important? Because I want to suggest to you that many people, a lot more than you realize, out there are like me. That the God question to them is a horror. It's something disgusting. It's a, they're not interested. Some are. Some are broken. Some are searching for truth. But many are angered by the idea that there might be a God. There might be a moral framework to the universe. There's so much crime, so much injustice, so much pain. If there was a God, he must be a bad God. So I don't want him anyway. This is the kind of things we have come up against. So I want to suggest to you as Christians, particularly today, 
we have to take context very seriously. Context, context, context. Who is the person I'm talking to? Is this friend a friend who has been hurt in the church? Is this a person who has been raised by people who are anti-Christian? Is this a person from another faith? What is their view of what they mean by the word God, and how do they address this question? Who are we talking about? Who are we talking to? It's not mere choice, not mere product. You see, when I heard this for the first time, I thought it was just, you know, something like, oh, I like to beat people up. You like to go to church. Good. You go to church and I'll go beat people up. In other words, it was just a choice. It was a preference. Maybe you're a goody two-shoes type. Maybe that's what you get your happiness from. Maybe you just like being nice. Maybe you're scared. You don't like getting into trouble. You don't want to take any risks. You want to live in the Christian bubble. Well, go do that. But I didn't think it had anything to do with reality. And that was my fundamental mistake. I didn't understand that the gospel was a claim to reality. The the words that the Bible talks about, creation, fall, humanity, salvation, eternal life, death, life, these are big words. Listen to these words from the gospel of John in chapter one, verses one through five. Now, I'd never heard these words, but when you read them, listen to the majesty of what they're saying. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. Apart from him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. Now, those words are colossal, aren't they? They may not be true. They may be imagination. They may be just the writing of some guy with a poetic, maybe had a nice curry on a Friday night, and he thought, well, let me write something cool about, you know, the universe. If they are true, it redefines the nature of existence. It tells us about the substance of reality. It's either true or it's false. It's not just a question of interpretation. And listen, Dr. Nietzsche came along telling us, there is no such thing as truth, there's only interpretations. That's very wise, Dr. Nietzsche. Is that truth or is that just an interpretation? (laughs) Physician, heal thyself. All the person says there's no such thing as truth. Basically, I said, well, can I ask you a question? Is it true that there's no such thing as truth? We make ridiculous statements all the time, and we buy this in for, for philosophies that give us escape cards so we don't have to deal with reality. And so in my case, in the case of many places, the question of God was that for God, the idea for some is just impossible. Hasn't science buried God? Haven't we proved once and forever that there is no God, that the scientific rationality, reason, chemistry, biology, astrophysics, and so forth, we have burrowed down and we have looked up both dimensions of the universe and we have cracked the code. We know all this. Well, not at all. Some of the world's leading scientists are men and women who are deeply and profoundly Christian, who there is no contradiction between science and faith. There's a contradiction between scientism, which is a philosophy, it's an ideology. That's not science. Science doesn't contradict the Bible. The Bible doesn't contradict science. They integrate because they come from the one source, God, reality, truth. So I'm not afraid of science. I want to learn from science. But this idea that it's ruled out God is impossibility is not true. The second thing is for many people, well, it's just implausible. That's where I lived. I mean, going to the dance hall on a Saturday night, going out with my friends, going through the normal, I mean, you didn't see God, did you? You didn't sort of bump into God in Sucky Hall Street in Glasgow. I didn't see him at the local discotheque. He wasn't there. So the whole idea seemed to me implausible. 
The Russians famously said when Yuri Gagarin went into space, he looked around and he didn't see God out there. Well, I'll bet he's seen him now. He's passed on, by the way, so he's, he's a chance to find out if there's something there or not. But implausibility is a factor we have to deal with. I may be trying to talk to someone, a relative, a friend in the university, a colleague, and it's just implausible. And that's where we have to have our conversation, to talk to them. What is plausibility? How would you know? How would we know that we know? And get into these questions. But I think for many today, the bigger issue is irrelevance. Well, God's just an irre- irrelevant. Why? Because in the modern world, we are defined today by what we call psychological man. Many years ago, the idea was that we were religious men, we were born to be saved. Psychological man is born to be pleased. And as many Americans today are nothing more than just emotional babies and narcissists, and many Brits, and many Germans around the world, we have come to believe that emotional gratification is what truth is. So truth I measure from my guts, from my feelings, But that's not the nature of truth. Your feelings may help you to orientate you towards things. They are not the measure of truth. And if subjectivity becomes the basis of reality, you're in deep trouble. So I learned the question that the unexamined life is important. It was was Socrates that famously said the unexamined life is not worth living. But in my life in Scotland, I grew up, I had a great big do not disturb sign on my life. I I don't want anyone telling me what to do. I don't want anyone intruding with ideas. I didn't seek any wider knowledge of religion or God or anything. I couldn't care less. Why? Because I knew things. I mean, what did I need? I knew how to get to the bar. I knew how to have fun. I knew how to... the, The things that I needed for life, I had answered. But God is the great iconoclast. God doesn't leave us alone. He comes into our world. He disturbs. He questions. He probes. He brings annoying people, sometimes annoying Christians that you don't like, who ask questions and say things. Now, please, there's a difference between an annoying Christian who is annoying because they're trying to just be loving for God and they're annoying Christian who are just plain annoying, periods. So let's try not to be the latter and be more the former. But how does God do these things? Well, he does it through witnesses. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, We have this uh, promise that we would receive the power of the Holy Spirit. He would come upon you and you would be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria as far as the remotest part of the world. Said to the early disciples. But this idea of being a witness. You see, my job as a Christian today is not to convert people. It's not to go out there and, 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 and ram anything down their throat. It's simply to be a witness that God is real, that he is loving, that he is holy, that he loves them, and that there is good news even in the midst of the mess, the muddle, and all that we see in our culture today. That Christ has risen. That Christ has died. That he is here for us. That he is real and that he loves us. My experience came from the woman that I had been living with, being witnessed to by a Christian couple, and coming in and asking me this question one day, what did I think about Jesus? But here's what happened. Because of a faithful witness, somebody witnessing to an unbeliever, an unbeliever, a witness comes to me and asks me questions and gets me thinking. Because there's this cascade that happens in our world. 
And in my case, I wasn't willing to even consider that God might exist because I didn't want there to be a God. I didn't want the idea that there was something holy or powerful or good or light or any moral obligation in the universe. I didn't want that. The idea of radical freedom, that I define myself, I name what reality is, I do what I please on my terms whenever I want, that's the human condition. That was my heart. That was where I was living. I didn't want the truth because the truth was disturbing. The truth was costly. So what did I do? I learned to ignore it, to deny it. I came up with all kinds of rational. I didn't really care about the philosophy, but if I could find a book by Eric von Daniken, by Friedrich Nietzsche, by Freud, anybody who could explain, oh, that's a sufficient explanation. See, it's just psychology. It's just some philosophical uh, error. Oh, the Bible was badly corrupted and transmitted wrongly. It's all a bunch of nonsense. Those Christians, they're a bunch of, you know, half people who can't think well and are emotionally needy individuals who come to a church because they want to drink tea and eat shortbread on Sunday. No, that was in Scotland because I realized it'd be coffee and something else here in America, but there you are. The human condition. But we are drawn to think. Witnesses bring something. In Romans chapter two, verse four, I love this where it talks about God's heart. So do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and restraint and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? I didn't know that this God is so great, is so loving, is so good, that he moves a, a couple to witness to a girl, to witness to me, because his kindness is cascading through voices, through different kinds of things, drawing my heart, pointing me to something that ultimately would end up at the feet of Jesus. A young couple who weren't theologians, weren't philosophically trained, but just were ordinary garden house Christians living a faithful life, but serious about their king who knew the resurrection, who loved their God, and who testified. So what is this question? This question of Jesus well, the nature of the question is, 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 is important. Why Jesus? I want you to listen to these words from Colossians 1, 15 through 20, 120. And I love this because it's about the identity, the message and the invitation that is in Jesus. This is from one of the early letters by Paul to the church in Colossae, which is in Turkey today. Speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have the first place in everything. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness, the pleroma, to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross. Now, whatever else those words are, they're either truth or they're reality or they're falsehood. If they are not truth, they have no relevance whatsoever. They might be personally, I can use them because I like them and I like poetry and I like literature, I like prose and I can use it. But that's not what it's saying. It's claiming to be a description of the cosmos. It's claiming to be a description of human life. It's claiming to cover all of history. It's putting Jesus Christ as the center point of history. Now, if that is true, that's colossal, wouldn't you think? 
But I had no idea that this was the question that was being asked. When I thought of Jesus, I thought it was about some religious thing. I had shrunken it down to some triviality. I had no idea it was talking about all of reality. Johnny Erickson Tata said, God doesn't just give us grace. He gives us Jesus, the Lord of grace. Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer Church in New York. In the Christian view, the ultimate evidence for the existence of God is Jesus Christ. If there is a God, we characters in his play have to hope that he puts some information about himself in the play. But Christians believe he did more than give us information. He wrote himself into the play as the main character in history when Jesus was born in a manger and rose from the dead. So once again, the question was before me, true or false? You see, if I go into a restaurant and I want to buy something, or I'm going in to buy a car, there's not as much, as they're more, more involved in the, the, the car than the, the restaurant, but it's a, it's a choice. What do you like? What do you want? What do you prefer? And we treat all choices as if they're all equal, right? We think that everything is just a choice today. Just make a choice. It doesn't really matter. Do you prefer ice cream? Do you prefer, you know, baklava? Well, that's fine. Have whatever. Just have the choice that suits you. But when you come to this question, you're dealing something different. Supposing in the morning you wake up one day and you find a lump somewhere on your body either a man or a woman, we find lumps and we don't like what we find. And we go to the doctor. Well, do we go to the doctor and say, hey, any, any choice will do, anything will happen, any kind of diagnosis, it doesn't really matter. Just give me an aspirin or just give me some cream or something, any choice. No, you want the absolute right diagnosis because the diagnosis is going to tell you what's wrong with you. If it is cancer or something else, you need a clear diagnosis because you need a proper prognosis because you want life. That's the nature of this question. It's not a question of just a choice about a product. It's a question of life or death, reality or not. And I didn't grasp that in the beginning. So what does that mean for me as a Christian? Since I've become a Christian, I realized I have to be prepared. Not to become an expert, but I'm trying to tell people what I mean now when I say the words Jesus. So Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Your speech must always be with grace. How we say things, gently, kindly, truthfully, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. You see, I didn't want to necessarily ask questions. Once I had discovered that Christ was real, once I had this encounter in Scotland, I would immediately from day one with my parents, with my family, everybody was asking me questions. Well, what did I know? That I had met the Savior, I knew about this much of Christianity, and I told them what I knew. But their questions drove me to know more about what had happened so I could tell them more as time went on. And that's the job of all of us. Not to become experts, but to follow Christ. To learn his word, his ways. To deal with the questions. Not because people are antagonistic, because they don't know the truth. And it's our job as God's people to translate it for them. But then I learned about what I would say inclinations and implications. There's a kind of popular heresy that all people are essentially innocent and sincere. I don't know what it is about growing up in the West and growing up in America, you know, oh, look at that beautiful baby, so pure and innocent, right? And we all see the lovely child. I mean, we've been one ourselves, we've had them. I've got two grandkids, they are marvelous. And then they become about 18 months or two years old. 
And then the little human being arises and shows himself. They like to break things. They want to open every door. The word no is the number one on their vocabulary. They scream when they don't get what they want. And as an adult, I do exactly the same. I just do it with more sophisticated versions today. The idea that we're born innocent and pure. Let's see what the Bible says. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Listen to these words. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood by what has been made so that they are without excuse. You see, We think sometimes it's only information only, just giving facts. And if we just give people the gospel, they'll get saved. But apparently, with or without the gospel, whether they've seen about Jesus or heard the gospel or even been in the proximity, there is enough information in the cosmos to condemn us. Listen to these words very, very carefully, what it says. There's given evidence that is ignored and denied. What do we do? It says we suppress the truth. What does that mean? We hold it down. What is known about God is plain or evident to them. His eternal nature and his divine power. It doesn't say who he is. It doesn't say what he is. It just says that he is. Has been clearly seen. So that they are without excuse. And the word there without excuse means there's no apologetic. I can't imagine, oh yeah, look. Come up before God. Here's old Uncle Harry. He was at Thanksgiving all the time. And Uncle Harry, boy, he, at Thanksgiving, he brought out all his anti He read Richard Dawkins. He read all the latest of the new atheists. He was trolling, or basically, you know, all religions go to God and they're all irrelevant. And he had it, every year he had us tied up in knots. And here's Uncle Harry coming up before this one and he's standing before the king and he's there before Jesus and, and he's, he's, he's standing. And what's his excuse? Hey, yeah, I'm sorry. Oops, didn't realize you were real after all, but hey, you got to cut me some slack. There wasn't enough evidence. You know, I would have believed if you'd just give me a little bit more data, you didn't show up on earth. Oh, wait a minute, you did. Oh, you didn't, you know, so I do something miraculous. All oh, right, you rose from the dead, but let's, let's put all that aside. I didn't pay attention to this, so it didn't really matter. And basically, I'm just asking for a hall pass here. It's not going to happen. And it, people are not ignorant, they're not innocent, they are rebels. We don't want there to be a God. I'm not saying there aren't people out there you can't find that are genuinely have a love for God. There are some like that. They're often the exception. But the vast majority of people, they don't want a God. They don't want to bow the knee to this. They don't want to give themselves to truth. Why? Well, just think about all the evidence that is available. I had played this ignorance game for so long, and then people, once I become a Christian, people start handing me books like Evidence That Demands a Verdict, or books by Mike Lacona, or Abdu Murray, or Gary Habermas, who have spent their life studying the evidence for the resurrection. Is it definitive and exhaustive? No. Is it sufficient? Yes. There is massive, concrete evidence that demands that it says something There's factual data out there, but we pretend it doesn't exist. We ignore it because, well, I haven't seen it, so it can't exist. Mind you, I didn't take the time to go look for it, but that doesn't matter. I haven't seen it, so it doesn't exist. There is evidence for the Christian faith. There is evidence for the existence of Christ. There is evidence for the resurrection if those who want it will look. But what about testimonies? What about witnesses? In the last number of years, I've had the privilege of meeting all kinds of people who give testimony that they have met God. And these were people like me going down very, very different roads. One of my friends, uh, a guy that I met a number of years ago, 
I was shocked. He, was, he, he looks like a preppy boy. He was, you know, Oxford shirt and trousers and just looked like a nice, typical southern boy. And then he tells the story about going to drop off a bomb on the door of this Jewish doctor down in Mississippi. And as he's going there, a shot rings out. The woman who had taken him there shot through the throat. She dies. He gets into this massive gunfight with the police, shoots a policeman eight times, and the policeman lived. He gets shot from about 12 feet with a 12-gauge shotgun, almost blows his arm off, ends up living, going into prison, uh, escapes from prison, and when he escapes again, the FBI ambush him and this other guy, the other guy with him gets killed. He was a white knight of the Ku Klux Klan. He gets saved in a prison in Mississippi, and today he's the head of the C.S. Lewis Institute in Washington, D.C. You can read his book, Consumed by Hate, Redeemed by Love, Tom Terrence. I have another friend recently I met a few years ago. He's a KGB agent, a sleeper in this country. He was never caught. He was caught after, after the wall came down, after the things were opened up. There was, and it's too long to tell you the story. It's an incredible story. But in his search, he became a Christian. He's a believer now. Raised in East Germany, recruited by the KGB, walks into a church, hears about the love of God, and is melted, and he loves Jesus. Or Nabil Qureshi, some of you knew my friend Nabil, the Muslim who one day gets so desperate, arguing back and forth with Christians, tying them up, and one day he gets tied in knots because he's all his intellectual questions are answered. So he prays, seeking Allah, he finds Jesus. And I could tell you more. The evidence is there. There's data there if we're willing to look. Who do we say that he is? But you see, the issue for many people Christian and non-Christian alike, is the costs and consequences of following Jesus. Abdu tells the story that he, he went on an intellectual journey for many years and he became convinced, but it was a long time still because for him to make a decision because of the cost of belief. He knew what would happen in his family. Listen to these words of Jesus in Luke chapter 9, 23 through 26. He was saying to them, to, this, to them all, if any man wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, this is the one who will save it. What, what good does it do a person if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and of the glory of the father and of the holy angels. You see, that only makes sense if you think of who it is that's talking. If the word became flesh, if God, the creator, the alpha, the omega, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if this God sent his son and his son came amongst us, and this is the one that's talking, that changes everything. It's not just the Jesus of our flannel board, the Jesus of my heart and my personal salvation. He is the king. He is the savior. He is the ruler of all. And who we say that he is is the single most important question in life. But that means admitting the truth and it involves change of repentance. For me, once I realized this, I went into this house in Scotland. I had gone. I was going to beat these Christians up. I'm sorry to say that, but that was the truth. I got ambushed by grace. I heard the gospel. I had no idea. That evening I went up and I remember kneeling down and praying in their bathroom. And I said, God, if you're there, I need to know you. And I, I had an encounter with the living God. Now, I have spent 40 odd years trying to figure out what happened that night, trust me. 
because it recalibrated everything. I had to rethink everything. I had to think all kinds of things that I thought I knew that I didn't know. Things that I didn't know. There was a lot of stuff I didn't know about the universe. I didn't know about human hearts. I didn't know about life. Didn't know about salvation. Didn't know about covenant. Didn't know about eternal life and eternal hope. There were all kinds of things I had to learn. And now I know they're real. And I know where I'm headed. And I hope to God you do too. But when I got that information, I remember having this kind of oops moment. Like, there really is a God. And all of a sudden I became aware of something. So I go into this house, absolutely convinced there is no God, go through an experience where there might be, and walked out of that house knowing that he is real, that he is risen. Romans chapter 10, 8 through 11, means confessing wrong. What does it say? Talking of the gospel, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. And I did that. And I believe that. And I've told others to do it. And I've seen it happen around the world. I love these words from Bruce Wilkerson. Repentance means that you change your mind so deeply, it changes you. Thomas Carlyle, of all the acts of repentance, of all acts of man, repentance is the most divine. The greatest of all faults is to be conscious of none. How many people do you and I know? Oh, I'm good enough. Hey, I don't need anything. I'm perfect. I'm holy. I'm happy. I don't need anything. They think that their self-contained righteousness, self-righteousness is a guarantee of something and it's a guarantee of nothing. Morality doesn't save you because morality doesn't condemn you. Sin is a sickness and you need a savior from sin. Those are not the same thing. Jesus saves sinners. He rescues the unrighteous. He gives help to the hurting, the the, the lonely, the needy. He gives the gospel. And that means being willing to surrender. That's what happened to me. I like what uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that was because for me, and I think for many people, it's waking up one day, I realize who is calling. You hear this in the words of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, who ran from God, who moved from, from pantheism, to uh, naturalism, pantheism, toward, and then theism. Then one day, he didn't want Christianity. He wanted to be a theist. He was rationally persuaded, but he heard the footsteps of the one that he was resisting for so long. And then he says he was surprised by joy. Because that's what the gospel really is. If it's real, it's meeting the creator. It's meeting the savior. It's experiencing his love, his goodness. It's finding that I am made by someone for something and eternal life. There is eternal hope. So lastly, the way of faith. You know, many years I've been sharing as uh, was said, you know, as I travel. And, you know, I've done all kinds of different ways to communicate with people. Sometimes we talk about a theme and I share that and then segue in and try to show them how the gospel is. But there are many times where I've just said, I'm just going to go for it. I'm in this situation with people. And so I start with this text, John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, that's a shocking statement, isn't it? As a Christian, it might roll off your tongue. It's familiar. You love it. I love it because I know the meaning of it. 
But to an unbeliever, to someone or another faith who hears that, good grief, what are you saying? Are you implying that this is the only way? Yes, exactly. Oh, by the way, that's often what you're saying to me as well. So now we have to get into arguments for the truth and try to see how the evidence would line up. Why do I believe this is truth? Jesus doesn't say, I have the truth. I will give you the truth. He says, I am the truth. He is the message because of who he is. That's astonishing. And so when he invites us to faith, faith is not switching off my brain, casting myself on something that just because I feel it is good. It involves information, instruction, and information. You see, the confusion that faith is just believing what I want to be so as if in some Freudian sense, I am a neurotic traveling through life and I'm weak and and broken and I can't deal with reality. So I project a God onto the universe. I put my faith, which is just blind trust in something that isn't there. And now I feel happy. Well, if that was the idea of faith, that would be stupidity. That wouldn't be faith. That would just be, I want the universe to be a certain way, and so I believe that it is, and then I walk around pretending it is. How is that of any use to anybody? The reformers said there are three things in faith. There's noticia, ascensus, and fiducia. Noticia means that there are facts. Jesus died, Jesus is risen, Jesus is coming again. Those are factual claims about reality. There is evidence for the resurrection. There is testimony to this fact. There's stuff to be believed. If you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that God raised them from it, you shall be saved. That's the facts that are given. A census means, okay, I accept those facts. I believe that they are true. I believe it's reality. And fiducia means I cast myself upon it. What does that mean? I live by trust that this message is true. Not just of my emotions, the message, the facts, what God has done. I'm putting my trust that there is a God and I'm putting my trust in him. That's what faith requires. And that means knowing God. Ladies and gentlemen, when I was in Scotland, I heard this. I didn't get a change of ideas. They came as part of it. I had an encounter that forced me to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. And I have been on a journey ever since saying, Lord, what does your word say? What does your word mean? And I listen critically to the other voices, to the claims against Christianity. But I have met the Savior, and my challenge is to follow him and to know him. So the conclusion is this. S.D. Gordon once said, Jesus was God spelling himself out in language humanity can understand. Calvin talks about God's great condescension. You see, as a bouncer in a dance hall in Scotland, as a thick Scotsman, I couldn't see God. I didn't want to see him in religion. I didn't want to see him in morality. I didn't want to see him in philosophy. I didn't see him in the dance hall. But I saw him through the life of a woman, and I saw him in a young couple, and I began to have glimmers of something. And then when I knocked on the door, I found that the door was actually open. He was knocking. He had opened it. He was giving the invitation. And it was revelation. What is revelation? Revelation isn't some magical thing. Any of you have ever had a relationship, and most of us have had them or you'll have one. Revelation is what happens between human beings, isn't it? You meet someone, you will not know them unless they reveal themselves to you and progressively tell you, and you go on a journey. You never exhaust the knowledge of another person. Isn't it interesting that God comes to us the same way? He reveals himself. He gives us knowledge. And if we respond, we get more. And if we keep responding, we get more and we get more. So if you're bored, if you've switched off in the church, if you've dialed out, you're missing something. Maybe you're just religious. 
Maybe you're following an ideology and not following Christ. But ladies and gentlemen, he loves you. He is there. He wants you. This city needs you. This country needs you and needs this message. So I leave you with this. Who do you think Jesus is? Who do you say that he is? That's the question. God bless you. Thank you. One of the things that's been different in uh, this season with our guests is we um, kind of open the doorway for them to just personally express aspects of, of their own experience. And I think it's been very rich this season, as we've heard from Alicia and Abdu and Stuart and others in this time and the depth of that. Another thing we've said in this church over the years is that the gospel is oftentimes not acceptable to people but it should always be accessible, that we should use language and approach so that people can approach the gospel. And I think today what, what uh, um, Stuart has shared has been uh, incredibly accessible in that. And I hope that you take what you've heard today and that you apply it. Now, next week, uh, Mickey Bellamente, our discipleship pastor, will be sharing. The following week on Labor Day weekend, uh, Brian Wassum, one of our elders, will be sharing. And then starting with homecoming, I will be speaking for eternity It'll just feel like it. That's all. We're going to be back into our regular launch and what's taking place. Keep in mind, again, please, the uh, homecoming. But um, I really appreciate Stuart just taking the time and the effort uh, to be here and be with us. He's been a great friend. Would you just recognize one more time his effort on this? Now we're going to go out to lunch and we're going to talk politics and geo and all that stuff. So I'm going to ask if you stand, please, and uh, let's have prayer here. Father, I thank you so much for just the gathering. I, I thank you for those who are in the live stream, and I ask your blessing upon them. I ask that, that maybe even they would take the opportunity with homecoming to begin once again to be on-site, on location. But for all of us gathered here today, Lord God, I just thank you for the richness of your word. I pray, Lord, that we take these things and let them work deeply into our soul. And we'd recognize, God, especially in dealing with others who may not find these things acceptable, that just sharing our own witness in innocence and truth can have tremendous power and impact. And as we seek you more, we learn more. So guide us in these things, we pray. We commit these things into your hands as we continue to process these things through the week. I pray your blessing upon Stuart upon his wife, and upon all that they are continuing to do. Watch over him, I pray. I commit him into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.